0: episode 406 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that our institutions, our clients, our families, our friends, even our pets don't really agree with. Joining me for the news roundup, Scott Shapiro, professor of law and philosophy at Yale Law School, Nick Weaver, who is a researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley, and a new title here, chief mad scientist at scary technologies. Nick, we're going to have to ask you about that sooner or later. All right. And David Chris, founder of Culper Partners, LLC. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for the Program today. Let's jump into it, Nick. I know you you love this story, and I sort of enjoyed it too. It kind of brings us up to date on government and cryptocurrency. The Treasury sanctioned a cryptocurrency mixer for the first time. Really, is that's the first time we've gone after mixers?
1: It's not the first time we've gone after mixers. It's the first time that OFAC has gone after.
0: Ah, mixers. okay. So they prosecuted so, them, but they they yeah. they haven't sanctioned them.
1: Yes. And so this is clearly a mixing service that is resistant to DOJ pressure for but
0: this instead, is blend, blender.io is the is the yeah. company that's being sanctioned and that's a, not a small blender and and I guess we should say these these mixers are designed to, to take a whole bunch of deposits and then pass them back out without differentiating which ones came in and which ones went out, so that it's very hard to track unlawful gains through the mixer to the other side.
2: And can I just say, Nick, before you jump into the merits of it, hearts are breaking open in main justice right now, given the way Stewart framed that as a company that is apparently able to resist Attacks and pressure from <laughs> DOJ prosecutors, <laughs> and so is now proving vulnerable to OFAC sanctions. Oh, the shame! The shame, <laughs> in it. Uh, main justice, guys. You know, please hold up DOJ's end of things. Sorry about that. I, I, they will prosecute
0: people for failure to abide by the OFAC
2: sanctions. How's that? So that sounds fine. <laughs> Thank you, Stuart
1: <laughs> This is, though, long-term going to be a really powerful tool because it adds a lot more teeth to the actual enforcing money laundering rules that the cryptocurrency companies kind of sort of abide by, that when OFAC gets involved, it gets serious. Um, And
0: most most banks, I would have thought, even banks in countries that aren't particularly friendly to the US, probably hate people who've stolen cryptocurrency enough to follow the sanctions, or not just banks, but everybody in the cryptocurrency ecosystem is likely to be interested in enforcing this unless they've decided their business model is working for the crooks.
1: Well, let's face it, most of them, the business model is working for the crooks. Uh, The entire space is a traducan of scamitude. But also the timing of this from the treasury is very fortuitous because I have a opinion piece in Lawfare saying they should do the same thing to Tornado Cash, which is the money laundering as a service that is basically now built into Ethereum.
0: And th- there was a pretty clever way in which they designed it so that you could put money in and take it out anonymously, if you wanted to, and then say, oh, now I want to actually show you where I got that money. I And I have a receipt that shows that it was clean when it went in and therefore clean when it came out. But while it's there, it provides anonymity for everybody else's ill-gotten gains.
1: Yep. And it's big. So the basic unit for one of the pools is... ...roughly $300,000 so you can deposit a hunk of $300,000 and you get a cryptographic receipt. And you can do two things with this receipt. You can then withdraw your $300,000 from the pool in such a way that you prove to the program running the pool that you have a valid receipt. That the receipt has not been redeemed, but not which receipt it is. Okay. And the other thing you can do is once that's done, if you publish the receipt, that will say it not only the it will actually link the deposit and the withdrawal, that it allows you to say this was a particular deposit going in.
0: So why would you want to do that? Would you want to would do that as part of, you're, you're moving it to someplace that has real KYC requirements and you want to show this was legally deposited in the uh, in tornado cash, but you're ideologically committed to providing cover for the crooks?
1: Yep, because the cryptocurrency community largely believes as a, basically a article of faith that financial privacy on $300,000 transactions is a good thing. I believe is an article of faith that no, it's a fracking disaster.
0: So if you were a treasury and you really wanted to deal with that, you could say, look, we have concluded that half or more of the stuff that's in there is unlawful cash. And so we're just going to say anything that comes out of there should be sanctioned.
1: Right. Unless, of course, you provide the receipt. And if you provide the receipt, you can prove that it's legit. And this which, is which, 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 which
0: takes you from, from, let's say, 50% to 60% or 70% crooked. And so you start to uh, actually identify the crooked uh, cash.
1: Yep. And cool. the other factor is that OFAX levers only 20% of the cash. So only 20% is the DPRK's dirty loot. Mm -hmm. But the rest is all other criminal activity for the most part. 80 million here, 60 million there, 3 million there. It it adds up. And so the other criminals have a choice. Either they accept that their ill-gotten gains are tainted by OFAC, which is big bad news, or they reveal which ill-gotten gains those are.
0: Which might be a safe thing to do and might not be, depending on uh, where they got it. Okay. So, Scott, North Carolina has its own solution to this. They said none of our government entities can pay ransom to ransomware uh, gangs. It had a few uh, um, exemptions, but mostly it sounded like they really intend to do this. Is this a good idea?
3: Well, as I'm sure you're aware, there's a very ancient question about hostages and ransom. That is, on the one hand, if you pay hostage takers their ransom, you'll give them incentives to do it again. And so the natural suggestion is to do what North Carolina is doing, which is to prohibit the payment of ransoms um, as a way of removing incentives from hostage takers to engage in it. And so I'm going to be the first one to introduce abortion into this podcast. Um, <laughs> this is this is a lot like trying to prohibit abortion. Uh, the argument has been made and which I think is uh, persuasive, which is that rule, you know, rules prohibiting abortion don't stop abortions. They just stop safe abortions. And so the same thing people would say about rules prohibiting the payment of ransom, which is that companies that have a desperate need to pay the ransom will do it, they'll just do it in an unsafe way, in a quiet way, they won't tell law enforcement about it, and then we'll just get weaker ransomware enforcement systemically. North Carolina is actually the first state in the United States to prohibit a payment of ransoms by state and local government, Not Pennsylvania is also considering similar legislation. And New York actually is considering doing it for all entities in, in New York State, not just the public one. So we'll see what happens. It should be an interesting experiment.
1: One thing to add is that for a lot, payment is already illegal, thanks to OFAC. Right. That's right. Um, right it's the ransomware negotiators are largely about providing a cover service so that you can plausibly claim that this group of russian gangsters is the different renamed version and therefore you aren't violating sanctions
0: i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to challenge you on that nick cuz i have i've dealt with some of those folks and They have a pretty good business and uh, they have heard from OFAC that if they facilitate a violation of sanctions, they are also liable. And so on any given transaction... Cheating so as to uh, allow people to pay and running the risk of having your entire business closed down by being challenged as a facilitator of violations of sanctions, it isn't worth it for most of them. And so my sense is they're actually surprisingly conservative about that. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So I, 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 and while I'm holding forth, I will say, I guess I understand why this doesn't happen. But you would think that there was a halfway house between banning it entirely and letting it happen. Of saying, well, we want to discourage it. So why don't we just tell people who pay the ransom in North Carolina that they're going to have to pay two ransoms, one to the state and one to the ransomware gang, and in the long run, that's going to drive down the price because people are only willing to pay so much. And if they know they have to to double it before they uh, uh, can get out from under it, they're going to say to the ransomware gang, I'd love to give you a million dollars, but that would be two. And I don't want to pay two. I'll pay half a million uh, so that at the end of the day, the cost to me is a million dollars. And that will discourage but not completely stamp them out. And is less likely to produce the kind of bad acts that Scott was talking about.
2: It's like what Cass Sunstein would call a nudge. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, it's it's
0: (laughs) more of a a hand in your pocket, but
2: still. (laughs) I think the way to deal with this, and apropos of my prior comment on behalf of my good friends at DOJ, Matt Olson cannot allow Brian Nelson to outstrip him here, is for the FBI to just set up an undercover ransom and blending service combined, kind of like what they did with the uh, fake encrypted phones in Trojan Shield and just make it one-stop (laughs) shopping. OK. Yeah. So, guys, uh-huh. get off your butts, get into gear. Let's go.
0: All right. Well, while we're on a kind of a sophisticated cyber attacks, I there were a couple of reports out and I asked David to talk about one of them and Scott to talk about another, about the tactics that are being used by nation states to get into people's computer networks that were, you know, chillingly effective. And we've forgotten just how good these guys are. David,
2: the Chinese Winty has uh, got written up by, who was it, Cyber Reason? Cyber Reason. And speaking of what Nick mentioned earlier, a turducken of scamitude which I've <laughs> written down and will be using repeatedly, I should just start by saying that although my pet fully endorses, I am on the advisory board of Cyber Reason. So what follows should be taken with however many grains of salt you need. But there is the this obvious problem of massive PRC competition across all fronts including in the arena of technology and and what Chris Ray the FBI director is calling unprecedented campaigns of cyber theft, espionage. I think he said he's opening an investigation every 12 hours. And so it's a a massive problem. They're flooding the zone. And this particular attack from our friends in the People's Republic is from APT-41, as you said, known as Winti. They've been around since, I guess, around 2010. And they are hacking manufacturers in North America, Europe, Asia, including, it appears, members of the DIB, the Defense Industrial Base Energy Sector and others who might be in the critical infrastructure uh, sectors. So it's a big deal. And what they seem to have stolen using their perfidious cyber techniques is research and development, source code, emails, customer information, various personally identifiable information, some of which might have, I guess, blackmail potential. God knows what's on those corporate networks. And it's been going on, this particular strain of attack, since I think at least 2019, and the scary part is that a lot of these companies had no idea, even now, until they were told by Cyber Reason, which ferreted it out, that they were being, you know, ripped off. And here is where I sort of run out of gas on the technical front, but the vector here is very complicated, at least as I understand it or don't understand it, which involves kind of multiple different compromises, each of which looked at alone appears less bad than the sum of the parts. And it was apparently quite difficult for the geniuses at Cyber Reason to spot it. It was so difficult, I guess a lot of the companies didn't spot it. But now the dots have been connected using classic tradecraft and insight. And so presumably the attacks can be thwarted. But it's a very scary thing. And we just don't know, know how many cyber attacks of this sort are going on all over the place, we should assume, I think, that there are lots of them. And, you know, this is a very serious, I think, symptom of a very significant and long-term problem that I expect people like Nick and maybe Scott with his cyber expertise and you, Stuart, to get right on and solve, ideally, you know, soon, okay? So that's, that's the <laughs> yeah. story here as I understand it.
0: I'm, I'm with you. Increasingly, it's difficult to understand exactly how these things are being pulled off because they're not being pulled off in one way. They're being... Chained together in ways exactly. that are harder to follow, yeah well, Scott, the Russians were not to be outdone by Winty, and they had an attack that was described as hiding for months and months, maybe years that. I I think I understand a little better, maybe because there was a little bit more detail, but it sounded as though they, too, were taking pieces of code from various parts of networks, sticking them together, and then running them on pieces of the network that couldn't really be instrumented, like, you know, the camera in your your Zoom
3: uh, room. Right. Yeah. So I would just say that uh, this SpotNet it is really interesting, at least to me it was. Lots of interesting things about it. First of its, it is its persistence. Mandiant, who wrote the report up on this botnet, claims that the average adversary remains in a network undiscovered as of last year for an average of 21 days, down from 24 the year before. This botnet lasted 18 months, and that would suggest a nation-state actor, extremely stealthy, excellent tradecraft. But the botnet was focused Also on Excel's training, emails from corporate executives, like involved in things like M and A and other financial transactions, which would suggest that the aim of the botnet was financial. So, like on the one hand, like is this cybercrime or is this corporate? Is this nation-state espionage? Um, The APT, which they named. UNC-3524, I think, so nobody could ever remember it. Um, right. uh, they, they they did it by um, infecting devices with very poor security and using a very light malware footprint so they could live off the land. What they did is they used a lot of the Microsoft... Network tools like graph, uh, the graph API to exfiltrate and to search the system for the emails that they wanted. Just very basically, this is how it worked. And I, I, it, it's so complex that I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have enough time to describe it, but here's it. So first they, they infected a bunch of IOT devices like old conference security cameras that probably through default passwords. So they're that old. And they operated as the C2s, the command and control servers, because they're exposed to the public Internet. And what then the APT did was they implanted backdoors on internal network appliances that don't support antivirus or endpoint detection, like, you know, disk arrays, SAN arrays, load balancers, wireless access point controllers. And these network appliances, which are internal to the network, communicated to the C2s, In the IoT botnet through an SSH encryption tunnel. And what's really interesting about this, not only did they, like, did the encryption tunnel, of course, obfuscate what uh, the command and control instructions and the exfiltrated emails going the opposite direction, but they installed another very sophisticated backdoor just in case the first one was discovered using a SOX proxy, a SOX tunneling socks is the um a proxy server um protocol and they use a socks tunnel for the second backdoor so when the first backdoor was found they used the second backdoor to reinstall the first backdoor so it's just a lot a lot of cool stuff that they were doing and Mandian doesn't know who they are the tradecraft is reminiscent of stuff that Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear both have used in the past but they at this point don't know exactly who it is
0: really yeah really interesting and maybe highly effective it's i'm going to offer a, a theory that maybe the russians spent all their time and all their macho determination on building the coolest botnets And instead of trying to figure out how to take down the internet in Ukraine, and they might have tried something a little more effective there if they weren't putting all of their effort into being completely stealthy and defeating even sophisticated defenders in their cyber espionage, which, you know, is what you'd expect an espionage agency to do. They would promote espionage and downgrade attack because attack is just you know the stupid stuff that guys with tanks do, so maybe we should be thankful that they spent all their time doing this,
3: yeah, I mean, especially since I don't know if I own shares in those companies that uh, were stolen uh, <laughs> emails were stolen. but who knows if this was a way in which Russian government is trying to make more money, whether this is just like a side thing um, uh, it, it's it's too it's too involved for a side thing, but who knows? I mean, it's really very surprising but very interesting.
0: So I was surprised by the Biden administration issuing an executive order and a report on quantum computing. I guess maybe you just have to if you want to be a self-respecting Western government. But Nick, why did they do this? And and was there anything that led them to take this action? Is there anything surprising in this order?
1: It's slightly weird on the timing because there's this big push right now in NIST and also in the NSA that's been going on for years on what if a quantum computer gets built. Right. Um So, like years ago, the NSA changed the rules from Sweet B to CNSA, going hey, you can now use RSA and conventional Diffie-Hellman and don't go out and upgrade yet until we have post-quantum algorithms. Right. So the idea is that if you can build a quantum computer, it, as far as I can tell, is only good for solving two problems, order of a group and discrete log in a group. Right. That just happens to break all the public key conventional cryptosystems. and so there's, yeah,
0: but but there are plenty of ways to build crypto systems that are that you know that you have to basically go back and use. You can use quantum, and it'll, it'll give you a leg up. But you're going to be back trying to exhaust all the keys. And if your keys are long enough, no. uh, you know, and just double the uh, the, no. the keys, uh, you you get no, a substantial the public, benefit.
1: The public key cryptography. Is what gets affected by uh, quantum computing, right? And it is not a brute force problem, but a group theory problem to break. Okay,
0: fair enough. And but you if- can you can force the cryptanalysts, even using uh, a quantum, into uh, brute force and into another fight that is just like the fight we've been looking at for years no. of how long is your key?
1: Not. No, not unless we come up with new algorithms. That the conventional public key algorithms are known weak group right. theory problems, and it's not a exponential difficulty of brute force. Mm.
0: I I, I, I understand, but there are plenty of other calculations you can offer that, that don't have that kind of... That, there, there was an elegance to factoring as the time uh, the No, the time it's set.
1: not. No, it's the... Elegance is the public key notion, the notion right. that...
0: Uh, I, 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 I think can, we're saying the same thing. Can, I, yeah, RSA was elegant uh, and also is, a li- is easier to attack with quantum in theory, but there are plenty of ways to set up uh, time-consuming problems no. that are, that are can, time-consuming can for quantum, a, a, too.
1: Not with public key yet. This right, is but, what the current NIST competition is oh, you, you think is there's about?
0: no public key that you could do?
1: the No, the current public keys, oh all the current public key technology, the elliptic curves, right. the d- discrete log, the factoring, those all fall to quantum computing. I,
0: I think there's we're a, saying the same thing. I agree.
1: There's an ongoing effort to develop new algorithms and an ongoing NIST competition for post-quantum public key. But the competition is only ongoing, and there are open questions whether those algorithms are actually going to be secure, even against a conventional computer, because this is very new. Well, anything
0: new with- in crypto is a risk. David, you were asking
2: a, a it was question, just, I think. It was to ask something that Nick, I think, more or less just answered, which is that even in the absence of a quantum breakthrough, it, it seems as if some of the PKI is growing potentially vulnerable to just improved uh, conventional processing and or better decrypting algorithms. Um, and so I read of anxiety even on that front. And it sounds like maybe at least a little of that may be justified. I don't know. There's You're-
1: a little of that because one of the things is the hardness of the group theory problems that underlie our public key crypto. They're believed to be hard right but they're not proved to be hard
0: okay i i I, all that makes sense it's only prudent to be developing quantum resistant uh, cryptographic uh, tools and to have a plan for moving off of uh, our current tools when we discover that quantum computing is putting them at risk is that basically what the administration is saying yeah get ready
1: yeah and the the process is already ongoing, that the, the NIST competition is underway. I think they're at round three now. And yep. one of the things is all the post-quantum, when it gets deployed, is going to get coupled with conventional public key as well. So you'll need to break both. Sure. And so if it turns out that the post-quantum proves to be weak, but the quantum computers can't actually get built at scale, then we'll still be okay.
0: So I have said in other contexts that there's nobody better at fastening on the uh, public teat than physicists. I, and uh, I suspect that some of the discussion about how quantum computing is going to change cryptanalysis forever was designed to get NSA funding for cool quantum computing problems. But, Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, no, I'm. <laughs> I,
1: well, there's actually two things. There's the quantum computing, which is interesting. Right. And then there's the quantum cryptography, which is utter bovine excrement. And that is the physicist sucking millions and millions of dollars worth of research funding to do cool quantum things under an excuse of security that is broken. Um, yep. The security assumptions for quantum cryptography are bonkers that you still need channel integrity to do quantum key exchange. And we don't know how to do channel integrity without confidentiality anyway. It's the same primitives for both.
0: Well, the good news that I'm inferring from reading the popular press is that Chinese physicists are every bit as good, if not better, at fascinating. <laughs> oh, oh, oh,
3: yeah. <laughs> you
2: just say something like woo, "woo woo entanglement," woo woo. There it is. Fixed. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, God bless them. Let's spend
0: as much Chinese money on that problem as possible. All yeah, right. That I, is
1: stealth aircraft. They seem <laughs> to be good at that too. <laughs>
0: So I have good news about face recognition and bias, which you are never going to see in the newspaper, I predict, even though it's pretty carefully done. DHS, Department of Homeland Security, S&T, Science and Technology Administration, has been funding a test of authentication technologies. They're not naming the companies, although you can figure it out. But they set up a very careful test to see what kind of errors are there in modern face recognition for authentication, I should say, identification. These are like the kiosks that get you um a home when you come back from overseas and you present your passport and it checks to see if your face matches your passport or TSA or a, any number of DHS units which have to authenticate people to let them into a particular location. And so, They have done now a study that says, let's see how good the cameras are at capturing images that can then be matched up with the face and how good are they doing on face matching and how good are they when you look at the differentiation between men and women, dark skin and light skin. And the answer is, first, 75% of all the errors are in the capturing of the image not in the algorithm so that already is a body blow to the people who say oh it's the ai it's discriminating but even accounting for that the errors that the best systems produced here 0.8 percent of men were not properly identified that's less than one percent none of the women were falsely identified None of the dark skin, none of the light skin. There was it was zero errors on both based on skin color, and the only gender discrimination that they could find, if you want to call it that, was against men. This is really impressive. It's because the the algorithms are getting better, and because they focused a little bit more carefully on capturing. Better images, which turns out to have been a big part of the problem. So this is really good uh, good news. I uh, it hasn't been covered as far as I can see anywhere, but it was published this week by DHS S Now, okay, so that we are going to that's it will be our second message uh, mention of Roe v. Wade and abortion because it's like the it privacy flavor of the week. Nick, there's a whole bunch of stories uh, about how data that's being sold, location data that's being sold is uh, in particular, is going to have an impact on people who want to get uh, abortions in the future. I'm really skeptical of the whole that whole uh, line of analysis, but it does tell us that just as we covered last week, there are a lot of uh, stories being written about how your location data is at risk and you are at risk because of the location data that's being collected on your phone. And I, I, my sense is it's not as bad as the stories are making out, but it's still not completely no, comfortable. No, it's
1: worse. <laughs>
0: okay, so we're going to disagree.
1: Here's why. State X passes law criminalizing abortion under, in a post law. They don't, they don't
0: have to. 13 of them already have.
1: Yeah. Geofence warrant. Google, tell me all Google phones that have visited this location that are owned from within my state. This is a clearly allowed warrant under current law, and this will tell everybody.
0: But so, all right, you, what you're depositing, first, if the state has banned and effectively banned abortion, there are not going to be any abortion clinics in that state.
1: No, cause. it's the out-of-state Okay, clinic. so
0: now the people out-of-state, if you go out-of-state and get an abortion where it's legal, it's... It would be awkward at best to prosecute you. Maybe, maybe you could say, I'm going to write a law that says, if you leave the state to get an abortion and get an yeah, abortion someplace else, will. that's violation. But frankly, I doubt they will. I And, and I... I, I <laughs> Yes, all right I will I, okay, you who's sweet, got
1: sweet summer child? Yeah,
0: all right, I, I I'll put 25 bucks on it. or how about this? Uh, hundred dollars to the 501 uh, C3 that I would most um, be unhappy to provide a, a funding for. if you'll do the same, 100 bucks says that no one is prosecuted in the next three years for going out of state to get an abortion.
1: Ah, <sighs> make it five.
0: Five years? Okay, that's a deal. Five years. All right, I just don't think that's going to happen. I think that if Roe v. Wade falls, and it sounds like it will, it's going to be a big sobering moment for... Both sides, and probably more for the Republicans who've been pushing this, because it was cost-free to say, oh, yeah, no, it doesn't matter, Uh, rape, incest, uh, life of the mother, which is just all bad. And I just – I don't think that will stand politically. And the idea of saying we're going to make it illegal uh, and chase you when you go out of state uh, also – highly improbable, especially because it's the wealthier people who will be (laughs) aggrieved by that, and they will definitely make sure the Republicans don't do that.
1: You have way more faith in the Republican Party actually being remotely honest and principled than the past decades have
0: shown. No, it's not. I have every confidence in their desire to be reelected, and I think most Americans are uh, not where the court was when it decided Roe v. Wade, and they're not where the Republican Party is when they pass these test case laws. They're in a much mushier middle, as is all of Europe, and I'm guessing that's where we're going to end up.
3: Okay, so. Just to say that, uh, just to point out that Loving versus Virginia involved miscegenation, you know, the interracial marriage of a couple, the Lovings, who left Virginia to go to DC to get married where it was legal and then they were prosecuted when they came back. I mean, these, as you know, these things happen. And why? I mean, it's just really, I mean, why, I should say, I know we can bet like whether it's going to happen, but like there are half the women in the country who are now have to bet that that we're right. But uh,
0: yes, but you really have to. I mean, to to turn this into a privacy issue, you have to believe that location data is going to be used to enforce a law that, uh, as far as we know, doesn't exist now. And you have to imagine uh, 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 truly evil uh, Republicans. I know that's not hard for some of the people on the call, and Republicans who don't want to get uh, reelected. That's why I don't believe this is going to happen. And. Getting upset about the risk of location data, especially when this location data, you know, has been presented as they know you that you went to an abortion clinic. But in fact, what they know is the number of people they know this phone. Went to, oh, sorry. They know people from this location went to an abortion clinic and then went someplace else. And if you want to serve an ad to somebody who went to an abortion clinic, we can find those people and serve them ads. We can't find them and give you their names, but we can find them and, and let you, you serve an ad. You can find to them.
1: them and give you your home address. That- um, these data sets are not anonymous. They're well, I, as I remember, the, and
0: weren't these these were actually anonymized by census block when you return? It's not like they said we can tell you what their home address. You you could, I mean, certainly you could say I want people who have a home address of X and who have been to an abortion clinic, and I want to serve them an ad. But even then, getting to the identities of those people it's not impossible of course but it is pretty difficult and none of that was made clear in the stories that wanted to get you excited about abortion clinic location data
1: well then again you give me the cell phone data that the nsa was getting and i'll tell you which republican senators mistresses got their abortions
0: (laughs) So, so there's no doubt that all of this data if you dump it all together can be turned into a very, very detailed exercise of identifying where people are. You only have to look at the January 6th prosecutions and the immense amount of data that was uh, mobilized there to find everybody who was on the grounds of the Capitol on January 6th. But I don't think that's because it's being sold. It's because it, it is extractable, and if you get served with a subpoena or search warrant, you're going to extract it. Uh, uh, and nothing that people are talking about in this area is going to make that harder or at least impossible. We, well, if we, the we data is not world.
1: collected, if the data is not collected and retained, it doesn't get a subpoena. There's a reason why the geofence warrants only went to Google and not Apple.
0: Fair enough. And there's a reason why when you're trying to navigate, you'd much rather use Google Maps than anything Apple has. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> That's the problem is that there are some real values in, in uh, having the location data and having it analyzed.
2: Um, okay.
0: Let's, while, while, we're, while we're talking about easy issues, what about this disinformation governance board? Uh, uh, Scott, uh, is that just the, the dumbest name in the, in the last 10 years, or is there something to be worried about there?
3: Well, yes, it is the dumbest name. I had mentioned before we started that, like, there hasn't been a creepier title uh, since John Poindexter's Total Situational Awareness right after 9-11. I mean, you you call something a disinformation governance board. It's just a really, I mean, it just, it's, uh, I mean. It was kind of asking for trouble, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just. It's, it's almost like it would be good that there was a governance board that explained to the disinformation governance board how not to name itself to create disinformation. Just to open themselves up. Oh, that was very um, good, stuff. That was very, very good. <laughs> oh, thank, <laughs> very you, thank you. I, 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 yeah, thank you. I, I, think, I thought it might be a bit too meta, but, but everyone here is very sharp. So the, the second thing I think, which was really not great, is that the Congressional hearings, Secretary Mayorkas made it sound like this board was going to do a lot to combat the disinformation problem. He didn't try to hide it, he, he trumpeted it. And when the Republicans freaked out, DHS pulled back and said, oh, No, we're not, we're not, we're just doing all the stuff that we were doing before. We're just coordinating behavior. Right. It really also didn't help that they hired Nina Jankowitz to be the executive director who was the unfortunate creator of that cringy TikTok video of disinformation sung to a Mary Poppins tune. I have to say, yes, it was unfortunate for her. What a hell of
0: a voice she had, though. You know, I was impressed. And not bad lyrics. And I will say, you know, she is a former participant in the Cyberlaw podcast. We've interviewed her. So I do sort of I have some sympathy for her. But yeah, one, in this context, that uh, was a that was a tough the Twitter,
3: right? right, right, right TikTok. TikTok, right? Because you wanted somebody, you wanted somebody who is like like super sober, sober and boring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 before you said boring, I said sober and responsible. I was going to say like David. Um, I'm good boring, with boring. I, Boring's I, I, I fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, so I, I mean, you know, like how, how to assess this? You know, like. I'm sure you do, Stuart. You get these emails several times a day from CISA saying, you know, oh, there, there's a fraud happening, you know, there's a fraud happening right. when it comes to COVID, fraud happening when it comes to the border. You know, we get these, all, we get these all the time. So it's not like the government doesn't do things like that. It's just that what they claim to be doing now when they're a bit clearer, is ensuring that the various parts of DHS, like CISA, the CPB, FEMA, that they're all coordinating their activities to make sure that there's information sharing, which is compatible with legal authorities that each group has, which are kind of, as you would know, better than than, us. So they're all kind of subtly different from one another. So it seems like a good thing to do. It's just, wow, to call the disinformation governance board just opened itself up to more disinformation and the Republicans are running with it.
0: I think you're right that the retreat by DHS tells us that it didn't sell well, not just on the right, but Uh, across the board, or at least they they thought, you know, fighting disinformation, that's what we've been doing ever since the Trump resistance, and we should stand for attacking disinformation. And it didn't work because too many people think that what they say is likely to be treated as disinformation by the government. Because, you know, everybody's uh, said something that Twitter has treated as disinformation. And so uh, that must have provoked a reaction among uh, you know, the four centrists left in the country that DHS didn't like.
3: Well, I, I think also just everyone's terrified of 2024 from the, you know, left center. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, the DHS is backed away from that. They said, oh, yeah, we tell people not to listen to the coyotes when they tell them the border is open and we do all these messaging things. And that's what we were getting at. And we're going to ask the Homeland Security Advisory Council, Jamie Gorelick, and let's see, who was it? One other person to look at this closely, which means look at it until we get past the election <laughs> and then we can bury it. <laughs> right. All right. Okay. I, uh, Nick. I know you love this story, too. The Spanish prime minister's phone has been targeted with Pegasus spyware. This was interesting to me only because the Catalan uh, separatist's phones had all been targeted with Pegasus spyware. And so I thought, well, naturally, that's uh, Spanish intelligence. But, you know, unless something is weirder happening in Spain than I thought, it's unlikely that Spanish intelligence was also targeting their prime minister.
1: Yep, uh, there's enough schadenfreude produced to power all of Catalonia with this story. The The problem is with NSO Group is they've been selling to so many actors. And there was an article in the Financial Times as well going the ownership group that owns 70% is complaining that the NSO Group is not answering questions to their owners about what's going on and so we don't know whether it was rogues in spain also targeting the prime minister or somebody other customer targeting spain i've heard Uh, the
0: moroccans identified as a possibility
1: uh it could be anybody yeah um the the problem is, to put it bluntly, NSO Group is selling the AK-47s of computer intrusion tools, and there's a hell of a lot of them. So when someone is shot with an AK-47, it's really hard to say whose it was.
0: Yep. Okay, let's see if we can get through three or four stories pretty quickly. Scott, there's been a lot of complaining from ISPs in the UK that they were told that, again, this is a sanctioned story, that they should not be allowing access to sanctioned parties. Presumably, that would include things like RT on the internet. They should be blocking these URLs. That has produced a a flurry of objections from the ISP. What's their concern?
3: Well, first of all, (laughs) nobody told them. Um, <laughs> um, and then there was no consultation, and then all of a sudden, well, so this is what they say, right? Like two weeks ago, they're told, y- you need to do this. You need to block URLs to what they call designated persons. And they're like, we're not set up for doing things like this. Like, we could probably do DNS blocking. Like, you won't be able to resolve um, domains right. to designated persons, but like, we don't do detailed IP range blocking like like that and it's like I'm not sure it would be great to set up all ISPs with the ability to kind of do that I want to stick a pin in this when we get to the next story about the free and open internet that all the democracies um <laughs> pledge to but, but it's like it, it was such an unbelievably poorly formulated and drafted regulation because it basically said that anyone who's providing an internet service Passive of connecting to an internet service of a designated um, uh, person, but like you you know, like does that apply for my iPhone hotspot that I use on Metro North? You know, I'm providing an internet service, and then there's issues having to do with is the VPN using uh, is VPN does the designated person use the VPN like? it's just a it's a nightmare it was ill considered and this is what happens when you make decisions without consulting um uh, yeah, you know who's those. been
0: working on this technology and i'm sure could provide it yeah. uh, the chinese and
3: maybe the russian government right, <laughs> right exactly i mean I, it's not exactly a, a thing that we want to get all isps in the free world to do is to like very easily censor h- whole parts of the world so anyway
0: so, but but we'll 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 stop that by soft BS uh, mushy statements that we pretend are kind of like international law, but not because we don't want them to be binding. And we'll have a Paris call and a declaration for the future of the internet. Bruce Schneier had a good takedown of the corporatization of international law in the Paris call. And just to show how sensitive to that uh, they are, the US government put out something that's kind of almost uh, indistinguishable from the Paris call. And they called it a declaration for the future of the internet. I have Zero faith in these mushy statements so that they, is just an excuse to get together
3: and pat each other on the back. Or am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. So, first of all, I believe that it was an essay by Tara Wheeler. Um ah, so, okay. so, so So, just so just like,
0: I, I, g- I gave Bruce credit for that because it sounded like Bruce. Well, yeah, okay. right, no,
3: right. But it, it, it says on the bottom of this essay uh, of the blog post was written by Tara Wheeler. But so there is nobody in the league world. Well, I shouldn't say that, but I am definitely... Um, a sucker for international declarations. You know, I wrote a 500-page book on it a couple (laughs) years ago. But this is just, I mean, this is just, you know, unicorns and fairies. So on the one hand, you know, it's fashionable to say that large platform companies like Microsoft and Google and Facebook, they act like nation states now, you know, because they determine who can speak and what can be said. But like now they're really trying to act like nation states negotiating international treaties. And that's um, not like really the way it should be done, it really should be led, I agree with Tara, this should be led by nation states, although in a multi-stakeholder fashion. But like when you look what the nation states did, what they put together was the Declaration for the Future of the Internet. And it's, you know, all the kinds of things that you would want from the Internet, you know, promote Universal access, protect human rights, economic competition, secure, I mean, everything you'd ever want and unicorns and fairies. Um, it even calls for net neutrality, even though like, just like has left that behind for right now. I, I don't even know what it's supposed to do. I can't hurt probably will, you know, might help. I don't know. You know, hopefully the universal, it, it I don't know. Uh, you know, it, God bless their hearts. Yeah. So this is Tim Wu, I
0: think, who's on the National Security Council, and who seems to have left all of his clarifying cynicism about business behind in academia and brought only the fairies and the unicorns with him when he started making policy. But he did bring that neutrality with him as well. It was a disappointment. I would have expected something a little more Gimlet-eyed from him.
3: Yeah, I I was disappointed when I... Reddit for it's almost like complete lack of content because, I mean, everyone, you know, democracies want all these things, except that actually they involve trade-offs and they're really hard to figure out how to have a free, open, interoperable, human rights-respecting internet, you know, how you get all that together is is an incredibly difficult task that can't be um, worked out in three pages or even helpfully even mentioned in three pages.
0: All right. Okay. Last two stories, David. In keeping with our theme of only asking yep. you to talk about stories where you have a conflict <laughs> right. of interest right. uh, outstanding, I, <laughs> I do have
2: a conflict here or a bias <laughs> the, uh, as a member of Paul <laughs> Nakasone's external <laughs> yes. advisory board at NSA. But his apparent extension of tour, I think, is good news for two reasons. You know, first. I do think Nakazone is a superb leader. He's done an awful lot for NSA as director and as commander of U.S. Cyber Command, the military combatant command that he leads simultaneously. And
0: And pretty much tamped down all the talk, which I never thought was very persuasive about how they ought to be – I,
2: I don't know as he's tamped it down permanently, meaning that is a recurring issue. But I mean, I do think that is one of the two reasons why this extension of tour is such a good thing. The first being his personal qualities, his leadership and experience. He's terribly smart and he's very action oriented and I really like him and admire him. But I do think he has demonstrated across a variety of fronts beginning no – certainly by the time of the Russia small group – that he can maximize the synergy that come out of this dual hat arrangement in which he's both the director of NSA and the commander of Cyber Command. And it it really requires a lot of hard, fast, thoughtful trade-offs, again, on the one hand, with the use of intelligence. And we have seen that in spectacular fashion in connection with Ukraine, where they sort of preempt uh, false flag operations or efforts by Putin and, and really just I think bring intelligence to operational matters uh, galvanizing the alliance and really messing with Putin frankly you know but you have to balance the use of intelligence against the protection of sources and methods that may be put at risk when you do expose and use it publicly and therefore might you know limit your ability to keep on collecting the intelligence and and similar trade offs are required in other settings he I think has really done a good job in figuring out how to do those trades thoughtfully, quickly, efficiently in the dual hat. And so I think this is a very good thing to see him stay on if that's what's going to happen. And it fits in, I think, with the future here and indeed with what can be known publicly so far about the future of uh, the integrated defense doctrine that seems to be animating DOD these days. So I'm a fan. I do have a bias. So take it with the you know shaker of salt if you need it. But I think this is a good thing for both of those reasons. His personal abilities – and experience, and his maximizing of these synergies that I've mentioned.
0: So I'm not on his advisory board, <laughs> but I do think that the division of the two commands is wrong for a very simple reason, and it's the one you referred to. Sometimes you have to use your access to the system to steal the secrets, and sometimes you have to use it to, to break the system completely. But you can't do both in the long run, that you're either stealing or you're breaking, and the decision to break is what combatant commanders do and the decision to steal the secrets is what the head of nsa does and if you created a combatant separate combatant command it would probably be headed by a four-star and nsa is headed by a three-star general when a three-star general comes into conflict with a four-star general he never wins, and therefore we would simply destroy everything and exploit nothing in the long haul. So I think it's that's a, a bad plan. idea. It's a strangely
2: hierarchical institution. The U.S. military isn't it? four being more than three. Or imagine that you had a civilian head of NSA, uh, right? In which you know
0: actually me that probably would be the only way to uh, to uh, address the problem because then uh, it would be an ambiguity that would make the uh, combatant commander <laughs> unsure cuz he's got civilians above him civilians below him then, then we you know, what is this thing I'm the dealing usual with
2: Washington DC inside the beltway knife fight in a dark alley juice contest as to you know who's going to win but it's just not a very i mean I do think Nakazoni has really, as I said, really been smart and thoughtful and efficient about balancing the equities, both of which he's responsible for, both of which I think he cares about. And, you know, it's a series of both tactical and strategic decisions that have to get made and they have to get made fast because the intelligence has a very limited shelf life these days and the stakes are really high. So you know, giving him another year, I think, is a very good thing, as he can try to institutionalize these processes, and to our, I, th- I think, to our really enduring benefit. Yeah, we've we've been
0: lucky in the NSA,
2: uh, yeah. we've uh, had, you and uh, I, Stuart, have the dealt the with a lot years, of them over so. time, right? And and they they have been strong, and not exactly. I think, is one of the strongest ever. Okay. And last point, I
0: just want to point out that we got to the very end of the podcast and Roe v. Wade had pushed Elon Musk, God bless him, off the the podcast (laughs) until this very moment. But I have to say there is an interesting article suggesting that Elon is going to have – a problem, not a problem, is going to be at risk a little because of Cepheus, that is to say, the foreign investment review process, because he is going to have Saudi and other foreign participants in his fundraising. And the fact that there are foreign participants, and they'll putting aside even the possibility that his heavy investment in Tesla in China could be a a mechanism for exercising control. The uh, Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States has a basis to ask for a review of that trans- of his transaction. So it's one more in the host of regulatory and market problems that uh, Musk's bid is going to face. If he's treated fairly, it's a relatively easy problem to solve, but it it shows that pretty much everything he does is going to require massive amounts of government decision-making, and at least half those government decision-makers already hate him. So he's going to have some trouble.
1: I'd just like to point out one thing with Phony Stark there. The Siffy's concerns are actually real because his pitch deck for private investors that got leaked to the New York Times. It's just bonkers. It's like 69 million people are gonna pay three bucks a month and all sorts of lunacy like that. So when you're dealing with foreign investment, especially like Saudi Arabia, which previously got caught inserting moles into Twitter to de-anonymize activists, it's going to trigger some serious concerns.
0: All right. Well, I would recommend that you not use the summon command on your Tesla in Saudi Arabia after that. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Nick. Thanks also, Scott and David. This was a fun hour to the audience. If you know somebody who ought to be working for the podcast, we are in the market. So get them to send a CV or a bio to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been Episode 406 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Stepto and Johnson.